all you hardheads, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. Welcome to the Hardheaded Sports Podcast, episode number 45, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. Today's episode is going to be recorded over multiple days, and the explanation for that is because we are starting to get into the NBA playoffs, and portions of the show, major portions of the show, really, are going to be dedicated to the NBA playoffs. And not only are the NBA playoffs more or not tending to be completely sporadic at times when it comes to momentum between series. I mean, if you want to take a look at the Clippers versus Mavic series, that's a perfect example as to how momentum, especially in playoff basketball, can swing not only in a few possessions, but across multiple games as well. And not only does momentum swing often in these first round playoff series and really the playoff series following that, it's also a situation in which these games are going different lengths. Some series go four games, some go seven games, and it's hard to kind of encapsulate that and tie a nice shiny bow around it, talking about all these different series on the same day. So what I've decided to do, not only for this episode of the podcast, but pretty much every single podcast up until the playoffs are over, or at least until maybe we hit the conference finals are the finals is to record them over multiple days and then sandwich them all into one nice shiny package which is this episode of the hard-headed sports podcast so i hope that makes sense we were going to do some breaks in the middle that's when you can tell that the show is kind of flipping over but with that being said thank you so much for all the support as always and i hope you enjoy the show let's get right into the hard-headed sports podcast so effectively, the last comments that I made about the Lakers Sun series on the last show of the uh, Hard Headed Sports Podcast, my comments were the Lakers are manhandling the Suns in their series. And in the context of that quote, I was talking about the Miami Heat and how the Bucks completely ran over them. They never stood a chance against Milwaukee. And we were talking about whether or not you could make the argument of, well, oh, Miami was fatigued. And that's certainly the argument that Pat Riley made, if you listen to his comments last night, was effectively, hey, the Miami Heat are really worn out. They're really tired. They never stood a chance against Milwaukee. Rest up. We'll go back next year. Uh, this year, or the bubble was not a fluke. It's kind of the comments that Pat Riley was making. And we were talking about fatigue in that moment and saying, well, is it really applicable for you to make the excuse that the Miami Heat were very tired? Because you took a look at the other side of things with the Lakers in the Western Conference and they were up to one in the Suns and they seemed to be just fine. And then Anthony Davis got hurt. And once Anthony Davis got hurt, the Suns won the last three games to eliminate the Los Angeles Lakers from the playoffs. My comments about the Lakers manhandling the Suns seemed totally outdated and just right insane and maniacal um the anthony davis injury was really what turned around this series as you would imagine it should i mean anthony davis is not only ginormous in how the lakers run their offense he's a ginormous uh you know presence on the court he's really integral to what the lakers try to do and kind of what their shtick is the lakers are are a big team when they want to be um and that's kind of something that goes against the grain when it comes to the small ball that's taken over the entire nba but the Anthony Davis injury was really, really crucial and really, really sad because you would imagine that if Anthony Davis was playing and he was able to withstand enough pain to play in Game 6, you would imagine that he would have done enough to force a Game 7 for the Lakers and the Suns and then everything would have been up in the air. You know, Colin Cowherd is somebody that I don't often agree with, but I think he made a really good point. 
when talking about the Lakers yesterday and the Anthony Davis injury, and he essentially was arguing that the Lakers fans have not seen the true Anthony Davis and that the Anthony Davis that they saw in the bubble was kind of an aberration. And I don't normally agree with Colin. I think he's a pompous asshole and he flip-flops his opinions too much. But with that being said, I agree with him completely on this because Anthony Davis truly was the Anthony Davis that he has been in his career during this season, especially during the playoffs, as opposed to what the bubble was. Anthony Davis has historically been a very good player, top five when he's completely healthy, but has never been truly healthy all the time. His availability is his worst quality, and that is effectively, unfortunately for him, the Lakers, what eliminated the Lakers from the playoffs was his unavailability, his inability to play. Anthony Davis has been pretty injury prone, and it's not been the big injury most often that's kept him off the field. It's been a bunch of nagging, consistent injuries that kept him off the court, and nobody has really recognized this in you know the large national <laughs> primetime market because Anthony Davis has been stuck in New Orleans for most of his career, and unless you're a diehard New Orleans Pelicans fans, which, I mean, I know there's plenty of you out there, unless you were really keyed in on the Pelicans as a fan, you wouldn't have known that Anthony Davis was incredibly injury-prone and that he was readily unavailable for most of the time and now that he's in a main market he's playing for arguably the biggest franchise in the NBA now everybody's calling it out well wow he's not really playing all that much it was a great point by Colin Cowherd and I couldn't agree more the Lakers fans finally got their true realization as to why you know Anthony Davis may have some knocks against him and that's his unavailability your best ability is availability as some say and Anthony Davis just does not have that it felt very, very similar, actually, to when the Warriors forced Kevin Durant to play against the Raptors in the finals, and he just clearly was not available to play. He shouldn't have been playing. He was medically cleared. Both of them were, actually. They were both medically cleared, but once they spent some time on the court, it was very, very evident that they should not be there, and they ended up getting more hurt than they should have if, if they just would have sat and not played at all. It was kind of it was kind of freaky how that reminded me of uh, the Warriors and Kevin Durant and how that kind of expedited his exit from Golden State. I'm not saying that you know, Anthony Davis is going to leave the Lakers because I don't think he will, but that just kind of sprapped, uh, came to mind. It was also, you know, really weird to see LeBron not being able to put on the superhero cape in the first round and bring his team back. He tried to bring the Lakers back from down 29 points, and he almost did. I felt like if they could just get it to 10-point deficit, they would have been able to pull it off, but they got to 13, and then the Suns kind of came in and uh, slammed the door on the Lakers. The pace of that game was just high-octane. It was certainly an entertaining game, but LeBron felt old, and that's kind of weird for me to say, as I just said. It was very weird to, to see LeBron put on the superhero cape, but be unable to deliver his team out of the ginormous deficit that they got themselves into. And um, I don't know if it's just LeBron being old, and I don't know if anybody else shares this opinion, but it was really the first time that I took a look at LeBron, and I'm like, wow, like it's it's very visible the mileage that you have now that you weren't able to you know dig your team out of this because normally you know you think back into the past when his team's been when LeBron teams have been in danger he has just completely dominated the game and it wasn't like you know LeBron James was ineffective he only had seven points sitting into halftime and he definitely kicked it into a different gear during the second half maybe you can argue it was too little too late but LeBron definitely elevated the play the play of those around him he just didn't have enough and it felt like he didn't have enough leadership when he needed to and maybe that's just because he's old he's more run down he's tired the Lakers overall 
just lacked that veteran player apart from LeBron that could really calm the team down when they needed to. And I feel like LeBron is at that age where he just wants to play basketball. He just wants to take over the game and he doesn't want to have to be a babysitter for these basketball teams anymore where he's like, okay, I guess, you know, the kids are done playing, let the adult talk. And then he takes over the game. I felt like he just didn't want to do that with his Lakers team for whatever reason. Um, it's like when you naturally find yourself just getting grumpy and grumpier with age and you don't really understand why it's like, oh, these, these damn kids, you know, uh, I got to do everything myself. It kind of felt like that. It, it was just a very awkward feeling that I was getting from LeBron. And I wasn't sure whether it was necessarily just age or maybe just unwillingness. Maybe it was tiredness and fatigue. Again, here we go with the tiredness and fatigue, you know, very, very interesting. But the, the lack of a veteran guard, uh, a leader at the guard position was the difference maker in this game for me. It was the difference between having CP3 for the Phoenix Suns and then having nobody for the Lakers to really take over the ball handling aspect for the team, be a veteran, you know, experienced presence and calm the team down. Chris Paul, even though Devin Booker shooting eight from 10 from three point range and absolutely blowing the Lakers out of the water to open in the game. Like that's what ended up probably winning the game for the Suns was the fact that they just ballooned to such a lead that it was near impossible to climb back from uh, but I think what really really solidified the victory was Chris Paul and the value of Chris Paul really showed up in prime time and I'm glad that everybody was able to see it and, and, and really be able to appreciate appreciate Chris Paul who has had his ups and downs in his career most likely Chris Paul really saved this game for the Phoenix Suns and you could tell that the lack of a presence uh, a veteran presence rather at guard for the Lakers was was what ended up losing them this game you could tell the pace of the game was getting away from Phoenix when CP3 was not on the floor and as soon as he came back during the fourth quarter it seems like everybody seemed to calm down and come to a halt the player that could have done that for the Lakers is actually still in Los Angeles but he actually plays for the Clippers and that person to me is Rajon Rondo the Lakers miss Rajon Rondo horribly this season and it's not that his replacement Dennis Schroeder did a horrible job especially in you know game six he played an okay game he was very defensively active he's just a different kind of player he's a firecracker he's a defensive disruptor he can hit threes when he gets hot but the pace that he plays at is at an 11 out of 10 all the time and he doesn't seem to have that leadership ability to slow things down when necessary he seems like a very energetic player he's a spark plug but he's not what the Lakers needed in that moment they needed Rajon Rondo and he wasn't there he's with the Los Angeles Clippers he they they needed that veteran presence to slow everybody down run the offense and once you get that close so because the Lakers did the hardest part they played almost perfect basketball to eliminate the deficit from 29 to about 13 or 10 they got that close but once they got that close and they expended all that energy they tried to put it into that extra gear to blow past the Suns and they just couldn't do it whereas if you have somebody like Rajon Rondo in the game, everybody can just say, okay, we're here. Let's calm down. Let's play efficient basketball. We have about five or six minutes left. We have the time to come back and win this game. We've done the hard part. We've come back. We cut it to 10. Now we just need to calm down and run the offense and get good shots. And it just didn't feel like the Lakers were able to do that. Um, Rob Polinka, I think really it was really highlighted that Rob Polinka made some bad decisions when it came to free agency with this offseason, the past offseason. Uh, Montrez Harrell 
at the beginning of the season, it's like, wow, they got the sixth man of the year. That's a tremendous addition, but Frank Vogel hardly used him effectively. And the money that they used to get Montrez Harrell could have been used to get, you know, re- retain Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee, or even Rajon Rondo. You know, it, it felt like Rob Polinka made some bad judgment with his offseason addition. Marc Gasol was, uh, I don't want to say completely unimpactful, but he was definitely underwhelming and not impressive. And it just felt like the Lakers took a step back this season, even though theoretically on paper you're like, oh man, Montrose Hale, six man of the year, sign him up. The Lakers are going to get that much better. You know, there's something to be said for leadership and chemistry. And when you throw that all the way out the door, not only did Rob Polinka dismiss Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee, who in effect, who kind of, um, not ineffectively, but uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, inadvertently kept Anthony Davis healthy because they were doing a lot of things that they were asking Anthony Davis to do this season. So not only did those guys keep Anthony Davis healthy, the presence of Rajon Rondo was a veteran presence that really helped the Lakers last season. And you could definitely tell that they needed it during this game because on the other side of the ball, the Phoenix Suns had that veteran guard presence in Chris Paul, and he effectively slammed the doors on the Lakers. He didn't necessarily have the greatest game stat-wise. I mean, 12 assists, 8 points, I remember if I remember correctly but that presence on the court is all that the Suns needed after Devin Booker had his, what I consider that game to be, Devin Booker's official ascendance into superstardom. The kid's got an incredible shot, and wow, he can absolutely play basketball. So I guess in the end, Rajon Rondo, the lack thereof for the Lakers, was something that I noticed mightily uh, in the closing minutes of the Game 6, and I felt like, you know, if he was there... I'm not going to say that the Lakers would have won that game, but that was essentially going through my head. It's like, wow, look how much CP3 is doing for the Cl- uh, for not the Clippers, excuse me, the Phoenix Suns. Look what CP3 is doing for the Suns, and look how the Lakers are just kind of sputtering out. They don't have that calming presence. Uh, that was my takeaway for the end of the Lakers-Suns series. Uh, you know, again, very unfortunate that Anthony Davis got injured, but hey, Lakers fans are figuring out that Anthony Davis is consistently unavailable, and I feel like we as a collective kind of just kind of push that to the side but it's because hey Anthony Davis has been playing for the Pelicans for so long that's not primetime television unless you're a Pelicans fan you wouldn't have known that Anthony Davis is that uh, unavailable so uh, you know hope that he gets better soon I'm really interested to see the Suns versus the Nuggets next round there's some serious basketball that's going to be played and I'm excited I'm here for it I've got to say, I feel so bad for Damian Lillard. I just feel increasingly sorry for the man who, year in and year out for nine seasons, has carried the Portland Trailblazers to a playoff berth, somebody that's carried the load offensively for multiple seasons, and for a player that seemingly gets the little to no help from his organization at times. To see him continuously get bounced from the first and second round of the NBA playoffs is hard to watch because he's such a talented player. He's probably my favorite player to watch, apart from Kyrie Irving or, or Stephen Curry. I'm, I'm a little bit partial to flashy guards, I suppose. He's a tremendous player to watch. He's an offensive superstar, probably one of the most incredible offensive players to play the game, at least in the modern era. And to see him get continuously bounced from the playoffs early on, And apart from the 2018-2019 season where they made it to the Western Conference Finals and they got rolled by the Golden State Warriors, apart from that one year, it's been nothing but disappointment for Damian Lillard, and you feel like by by now he should be having more success, and it's it's hard to watch in, in that aspect. 
Um, you, you feel bad for the man. He posted an Instagram post, a very cryptic message, uh, a Nipsey quote saying basically, how long must I stay dedicated? How must, how long must I be loyal? It's getting to that point where it's in the back of his head. How long do I put up with this? Uh, also the Portland trailblazers and head coach, Terry Stotts parting ways. Very nice way of saying that they fired uh, Terry Stotts. Nine seasons, 402 wins, 318 losses. The furthest he got, as I said, was the Western Conference Finals in 2018-2019, where they got clobbered by the Golden State Warriors before the Warriors lost to the Raptors in the Finals. In a league in which stars are consistently and increasingly forcing their will on the franchise and taking control of their careers, players like Anthony Davis, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, uh, Jimmy Butler... On the other side of the coin, there is Damian Lillard, who is the one superstar that has remained loyal to the team that drafted him and has not abandoned ship one time, not, has not done it, has not considered it, and he's been consistently paying for it with first-round outs in the playoffs. You could argue, well, what about Steph? Steph has not abandoned the Warriors, even though they've fallen on tough times recently. Stephen Curry has had no reason to want to jump ship like Damian Lillard would have the reason to jump ship considering how little help he has gotten from the Portland Trailblazers at times. Dame should want out of Portland, and it saddens me to say that because I feel bad for Portland too, to some degree. It's a small market team that isn't an inviting destination for stars to play for, despite Portland being a kooky and interesting city. I, I really enjoy Portland. And it also happens to be in a Western Conference that has consistently for the past 10 or 15 years been the stronger conference to play in. It's extremely difficult to get through. Portland is also one of the more injury-prone teams in the league. So Trailblazer fans, I get it. You know, before you get on my case about injuries, you know, I get it. it it's not a star destination for players to want to go to. Even though it's a great city, it's 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 a small market team, not necessarily the one place that stars are like, I don't want to go play there. It's difficult for teams like that, and it will always be difficult in that aspect. So I do have some sympathy for the Portland Trailblazers. However, that doesn't excuse the fact that the Trailblazers front office has consistently let down Damian Lillard by not getting him any substantial help in a league in which you can no longer win with one star on your roster. It's possible... I, I would consider the Miami team to make the playoffs, or excuse me, the finals last season to be one of those teams in which Jimmy Butler is the only star. Bam Adebayo, rising star. Tyler Hero played well. Duncan Robinson. But only the only true star on that team was Jimmy Butler, but that team had tremendous chemistry. It's possible for you to win and only have one star, but it is extremely difficult, and I think you saw that again with Miami this year. So it's possible for you to win with one star, but preferably you would have two or three, and I think that's pretty evident with what's going on with Damian Lillard and the Trailblazers in Portland. You need to have strong chemistry as a team if you're going to win with only one superstar. And the Trailblazers have never seemed to have that chemistry for reasons I'll explain in a moment. And after watching the end of the Trailblazers season uh, this year against the Denver Nuggets, they were out of the first round again earlier this week. I was genuinely curious as to how the Blazers have built their team since they drafted Lillard in 2012. Is it really that big of an issue? Because it's obvious to everybody except the Blazers front office, apparently, that Dame needs another superstar. Uh, I wanted to share my findings with you and kind of tell you what my research found, and hopefully you can form your own opinion as well. The first thing that I saw was a weird draft history. Not necessarily a bad drafting history, but a weird one to be sure. The Blazers drafted Damian Lillard in 2012, along with Will Barton and Myers Leonard. That's a very 
very solid draft. Uh, 2012 was by far, you know, the best draft year that they've had since drafting Damian Lillard, and that was the year that they drafted Damian Lillard. Uh, since then, however, uh, the Trailblazers have not utilized their picks very well, and a majority of the picks that they did have, they have traded away on draft day, which isn't too uncommon of a practice in the NBA, but I feel like it's extremely high for a small market team who would rely more on the draft than anything else, because as I stated earlier, it's hard to get free agents to come to Portland. It's not that attractive of a city, even though it is, as I said, a great city. So, since 2012... The Portland Trailblazers have drafted C.J. McCollum in 2013. In 2014, they had no picks. 2015, they drafted Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, but traded him away to Brooklyn. Effectively, again, no picks. 2016, no picks. 2017, they traded away both first-round picks to Sacramento and in return got Zach Collins and Caleb Swanigan. Zach Collins is a decent player. But he cannot stay on the court. He's incredibly injury-prone, so it's hard to say what his true value is. 2018, they drafted Anferny Simmons, or is it Simmons? I can't quite recall, who is developing but appears to be a solid rotational player. They did get the rights to Gary Trent Jr. in this draft as well. 2019, Nicer Little. Uh, 2020 traded away the first round pick and drafted C.J. Ellaby. Their best draft selection was C.J. McCollum all the way back in 2013. Again, 2013, that's a long time considering now we're in 2021. Since then, Portland has traded away four of their first-round picks on draft day and have not had any picks in three of those drafts. The pieces that they have drafted have either not stayed on the court or have been bench players at best. And Fernie Simons is one with the most potential. I can't tell if it's Simmons or Simons. It says it's spelled like Simons, but I'm going to maybe guess and say that it's Simmons. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Simmons, actually. So apologies to him for that. So that's kind of a weird draft over the past nine seasons for the Trailblazers. They didn't have a lot of picks for a team that re would rely more on picks considering it's a small market team. And the picks that they have, they've had the tendency to trade away for other people or just trade away for cash incentives uh, to begin with. So when we get to the free agency and trading side of things, here's where a lot of my criticism for the Blazers comes from, if there is any criticism to be had. Portland has two main problems. One, they think St. J. McCollum and Damian Lillard are enough when they're not. And two, they cycle through supporting players like crazy. Firstly, I think it's become abundantly clear that C.J. McCollum is not the number two guy on a championship contending team. He would be a number three at best. C.J. McCollum is to Portland what Chris Middleton is to Milwaukee. It's a very similar player dynamic. He excels in situations in which he can be a number two scorer, but he is not forced to be a number two scorer. He'll show you flashes of brilliance, but he is at his core a number three guy uh, when it gets down to it. The biggest thing for me, however, is the realization when looking through all of their transactions, and I'm sure I'm missing some of it, some of it is probably missing in some, some regard, but looking through the list of transactions, I, I came to a realization that Portland cycles through a lot of supporting cast members, guys that can be number three or number four guys, but are really just there to enhance and play off your stars, and at the frequency in which Portland trades these players away, it's impossible for there to be any kind of consistent chemistry, and some of these trades are for players that are not good or useful. Portland has the bad tendency to trade sideways a lot, and by trading sideways, I mean trading for players that are of equal value 
but they're not that much better than the players that you're giving away. They trade sideways a lot. They don't normally get better with their trades, and that's weird for a team that trades as often as the Portland Trailblazers do. And it's been that way since pretty much LaMarcus Aldridge left in free agency in 2015 that I feel like they've been cycling through a lot of players to try and find that number three and number four guy, and they just haven't found that person. Listen to all the names that have come through Portland that are good rotational pieces but not stars. I have a long list here. Robin Lopez, one year. Will Barton was drafted by the Portland Trail Blazers, played three years, traded in 2015. Aaron Aflalo, one year. Nicholas Batum, seven years, but traded in 2015, so only three years with Damian Lillard. Mason Plumlee, 1.5 years, traded midseason 2016. Mel Harkless, four years, not really impactful. Yusef Nurkic, five years. Gary Trent Jr., barely two years, spent time in G League, traded with Rodney Hood. Rodney Hood, three years, but barely played the first two. Hassan Whiteside, one year. Trevor Ariza, half a season. Trevor Ariza was passed around like a blunt last year. Carmelo Anthony, two seasons, verge of retirement. Seth Curry, one season. Robert Covington, one season. Normal Powell, half a season. Ennis Cantor, half a season. I'm sure I'm missing more, not to mention guys like Evan Turner and Kent Bazemore that were in Portland for a brief period of time as well. It's not all bad, okay? I don't want to make this seem like a doomsday scenario. These aren't all bad players, but at the frequency in which they play for the team and then they're shipped off in a trade maybe one or two seasons later, they're not... I guess it goes back to the kind of saying that they're not trading up. The, Port the Portland Trailblazers are not trading up in quality. They go sideways a lot. They kind of just shuffle in all these rotational pieces that... Sure, they may be good glue players, but they have nothing to hold together. You know what I'm trying to say? It's not the worst situation, but they're not also like not the best players. There are no star players. They take no big swings. They're all safe trades for rotational pieces that they trade away a few seasons later for another player of the same caliber. And that's the issue. It's the trading sideways. It's not that they're it's not a bad thing that Portland are active traders. Plenty of teams are active. I'm not knocking the Portland Trailblazers for being active. I'm knocking them for trading sideways. From the trades I've gone over, a lot of the trades are sideways trades. And I think the one that's going to be in the recent mind of people is going to be Gary Trent Jr. and Rodney Hood for Norman Powell. Portland Trailblazers fans, tell me, let me know, was Norman Powell really that worth it that you trade away Gary Trent Jr., who is hitting his stride? It's his third season in the league. He's performing well, 15 points per game, if I remember correctly. Sure, you want to trade while they're hot, but he is probably one of the more consistent players that the Portland Trailblazers, excuse me, the Portland Trailblazers have drafted in recent memory. He gets good. You trade him away for Norman Powell. Was he really that much of an upgrade over Gary Trent Jr.? Not to mention that you also traded away Rodney Hood in that trade as well. Let me know, Portland Trailblazers fans. Was Norman Powell really that worth it? Um, Yusef Nurkic is the longest tenured player apart from Lillard and McCollum, I believe. Um, I can't think of anybody else. Yusef Nurkic traded in the, uh, with Mason Plumley in a trade with Denver. And he, he's been good, but he kind of got bullied by his former teammate, Nikola Jokic, in the series that just wrapped up. So he, Yusef Nurkic not only has some injury problems, but he kind of got bullied defensively. He's good offensively, but that's about it. The Blazers need to make a swing at somebody big, maybe somebody like Carl Anthony Towns, because right now they run the risk of losing Dame and going into what could be another long-term rebuild unless they stop trading sideways and try and go after a big fish. Because again, small market team, it's hard to get free agents to willingly come there. There needs to be some incentive. Otherwise, you need to be doing some good GMing to try and trade and get yourself a contending team. 
because I'm tired of seeing Damian Lillard, you know, put his effort into everything. 55 point, you know, overtime performance in a loss during that series with the Denver Nuggets. I feel bad for Damian Lillard. He's an incredible offensive talent, a top five, top 10 player in the league, but consistently the Trailblazers aren't giving him enough help. He needs another star there. And that's not a knock on Damian Lillard. Granted, if this was in the early 2000s, having another star on the team would be, you know, not necessary, but definitely helpful. Now we're into a, 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 an era in which two or three stars are needed to win a championship. Damian Lillard needs some help. The Portland Trailblazers need to stop trading sideways and go after a big fish because you can trade rotational pieces all you want, but CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard just aren't enough in this case. So that's basically what I found in my research. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, and I don't want to completely knock the Portland Trailblazers because they have done some good things. And again, a lot of it is that Portland just appears to have a bad injury bug. They've had a lot of great draft choices is pre-Lillard that just did not work out because of injury. And you want to talk about like Derek, Don uh, Derek Jones Jr., Zach Collins, some of those guys that came in, got hurt. Uh, it's unfortunate. And definitely the injuries, if they weren't there, they had helped the Trailblazers. But there's a lot of sideways training for rotational pieces. And I feel like if they're not going to go after a big star, they need to try and find some rotational pieces that work well with Dame and with McCollum to try and get that glue to stick so they can move past the first or second round. I'm going to be taking a short break. Don't go anywhere. The Hard-Headed Sports Podcast will be returning right after this. Welcome back to the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast, everybody. On the other side of the break, we were talking about Portland Trailblazers and Damian Lillard and whether or not the Trailblazers were failing Damian Lillard as the face of their franchise and whether they were giving him enough personnel, enough good help for him to be able to do anything substantial in the Western Conference because they continuously get bounced out in the first and second round. And obviously, that front office is making some changes. We talked about uh, Terry Stotts getting fired. We talked about the free agency draft history trading. We talked about all that and I want to transition from that front office to a different front office on the Eastern Conference and that is the Boston Celtics who themselves are going through some front office changes at the moment uh, president of basketball operations which is essentially a really long fancy phrase to say the general manager of the team um, president of basketball operations Danny Ainge who's been there since 2003 is retiring and Brad Stevens who is the current coach of the Boston Celtics is going to be replacing him in that role which I find to be a very very interesting dynamic it's a very multifaceted topic that we're going to be talking about today because there a lot of people are talking about Danny Ainge's legacy and whether or not he did a good job as the Boston Celtics general manager but there's also the conversation of whether or not Brad Stevens is the right person to be fulfilling that role when the Boston Celtics kind of had not such a good season and I'm not quite sure where I want to start first but I I think you know, now that I'm talking out loud, I want to start with Danny Ainge's legacy. And a lot of people are saying, well, he didn't necessarily do that good of a job as, you know, basketball or president of basketball operations for the Celtics. And I think a lot of that is because there are such high standards for the Celtics. It's championship or bust pretty much every single year. You look at where the Boston Celtics were right before they traded for Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett. And, you know, Paul Pierce, Paul Pierce was on the verge of leaving. It was not a great season. I think they finished last in the conference. And then, you know, Danny Ainge said, okay, you want some more veteran players. I've got you. And he traded for Ray Allen and he traded for Kevin Garnett and they had the biggest single win turnaround, I think, in, in the history of the league. 42 more wins than the previous season, and they won the championship that year. It was the 
you know, first essence of the quote-unquote big three. You can argue that Tim Duncan, you know, Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker were the first, but uh, realistically speaking, everybody will remember that Celtics team as being you know, the first iteration of the big three. And then moving on from that, you know, he also pulled off one of the most lopsided trades in the history of the NBA trading away, Kevin Carnett and uh, Paul Pierce to the Brooklyn Nets for a buttload of picks that they used wisely throughout the years. And um, that trade really was what set the Celtics up for some long-term success in the last decade or so. And, you know, even though they haven't been able to win another title, they made the Eastern Conference Finals in four out of the last five years. And when you consider that LeBron was in the East, you always have to go through LeBron. Obviously not so now because he is in L.A., but you have to go through LeBron every single year to be that good, that consistently. Really should be, you know, we should be applauding Danny Ainge for his effort in that because not only did they use the draft picks very wisely, Jason Tatum, uh, Jalen Brown, some other um, picks as well. Marcus Smart ended up being one of those draft picks that came over or came as a product of the Brooklyn trade. Danny Ainge did a really good job and consistently throughout his career, despite some really, really odd circumstances like Gordon Hayward, you know, completely shattering his ankle in the first 10 minutes of being a uh, 10 minutes of being a Celtic. And then Kyrie Irving coming over from Cleveland and saying, yeah, you know what, actually, I actually just kind of can't stand Boston and I want to go play somewhere else. With all of those, you know, bad breaks towards the latter half of the decade with Boston being, quote unquote, a, and this is, this is something that players will say often that's kind of been floating around is that Boston is a racist town. So, you know, with, with, you know, racism in Boston and with consistently, you know, having some bad breaks, Danny Ainge has still been able to put out a good team consistently. And, you know, it, I, I don't think he's going to stay retired, but the man who's replacing him, Brad Stevens, is an interesting story. And I actually find this move, going from the, the, the coaching position to the front office, front office to be absolutely genius by the Boston Celtics. And here's why, essentially. I know the product that was put out on the court this past season for the Celtics was not really a good one. I mean, injuries here or there and dealing with COVID protocols is never going to help you, but they should have done much, much better this season than they did. And Jason Tatum is a rising star. He had his ups and downs. When you take a look at the product that was put on the court by the Boston Celtics this season, it immediately pointed to Brad Stevens. And a lot of the conversation throughout the season was, is Brad Stevens on the hot seat? And the comments that he's made over the past week or so was that he was just mentally fatigued from coaching. And when you take a look at the product on the court, as I said, that kind of clicks. I don't think he's lying. I think that makes sense as to why the Boston Celtics underperformed this season. So, you know, to say, well, if he's worn out as a coach, what makes you think that he's going to be any better as a GM? Well, first and foremost, there is no better person to be the next general manager of a franchise than the person who just spent however many seasons that Brad Stevens did spend coaching those same players. It gives you a better understanding of the personnel day in and day out that you are working with, what players can do, what they cannot do. And just being in a new position, a change of scenery can often be enough for somebody to flick the lights back, the lights back on and get their groove back. And the other thing is that despite what happened this season, I think Brad Stevens is a phenomenal basketball coach. There's consistently, you know, 
a bunch of college teams asking for his services and specifically college teams because they know that he has that college experience. It's very easy to go from college to the NBA. It's not so easy to go to the NBA to college. Um, it, it's lopsided in that, in that fact. So to have a coach with collegiate experience, a lot of people have been asking for Brad Stevens over the years for the Boston Celtics. I think he's a phenomenal basketball coach. And despite him being worn out this season, you would not want Brad Stevens to go to any other basketball team. Cause theoretically speaking, if you fired Brad Stevens, Brad Stevens would find work somebody else in the somewhere else in the NBA. That I can feel confident in saying without a doubt he would be on another uh, franchise as the head coach pretty soon. So instead of having to give up Brad Stevens and seeing him coach somewhere else and losing a really good basketball coach, you put him in the front office, you give him basically control over the team that he knows like the back of his hand. To me, this is a genius move by Danny Ainge and the Boston Celtics. I think this is an absolutely genius move. It's certainly interesting, and granted, this transition has been done once or twice before, but not exactly in the same way. You talk about, you know, coaches that become front office personnel, Phil Jackson, Pat Riley. It's been done before. It just hasn't been done exactly this way and under these exact circumstances. So I'm extremely interested to see what's going to happen in Boston. I don't think that Boston is going to be that great moving forward. I mean, they're going to be contenders in the Eastern Conference, but I'm not necessarily a fan of the roster as a whole right now. I think Jason Tatum is going to continue to be outstanding. I think Jalen Brown, when healthy, is going to continue to be outstanding. Marcus Smart is going to be a good glue piece, but I don't think that Kemba Walker is a good fit for the Celtics. And I didn't think that Kemba Walker was going to be a good fit for the Celtics to begin with. He was absolutely just Kyrie's replacement instead of being Kemba Walker. If that makes sense, Kemba Walker has been a very inconsistent point guard throughout you know his career and you know to be honest with you this is no knock against Kemba Walker because he is extremely talented and there are moments when you take a look at his game and say wow this guy can play basketball like at an extremely efficient level but the jump shot hasn't always been there and I just don't feel like he fits with the Celtics that well um, I don't know if they're going to want to move him moving forward. They definitely are going to have to start, you know, getting a couple of more rotational players, either through free agency or the draft. They've kind of used up the gigantic well that the Nets gave them with the Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett trade, and they've been uh, over that for a couple of years now. The Boston Celtics are going to have some work to do. But again, I think there's no better person to take over the franchise than the person that has been coaching these players for how many ever seasons now? I think seven or eight seasons. Um, I think it's a brilliant, genius move by the Boston Celtics, and it's going to be interesting to see if it pan out. So respect to Danny Ainge. He did a fantastic job. I, I know that you know people are only going to remember NBA final trophies. They're only going to remember the big championships, and even though they only got one, Danny Ainge consistently, you know, even though there were some down years, he consistently kept the Boston Celtics in contention uh, when you know previously they weren't anywhere close. So hats off to Danny Ainge. I hope he enjoys his retirement. It's going to be extremely interesting to see whether or not Brad Stevens can keep up that legacy moving from the court to the front office. And that's the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening to the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast. As always, highlights of the show will be posted on YouTube throughout the week since the show was done a little bit differently. Thank you so much, as I said, for listening, watching, supporting. We hit the 300 subscriber mark on YouTube. Absolutely incredible support. The show is always a lot of fun, and I always enjoy the company. So with that being said, stay hard-headed, everybody, but have a nice day.